Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So this week we wanted to talk about uh, a little bit of a current event and then brought it into a general topic. The current event is that the uh, the third-party YouTube client ProTube uh, was removed from the App Store um, Apple basically forced it out on Google's request um, because it was violating the YouTube terms of service, apparently. Uh, and I want to talk about some of that and then broaden that into the topic of generally developing apps that rely on other big services or that are not quite, that are kind of on the edge of what's considered okay uh, or what might be allowed or what might be legal. The ProTube app specifically. Um, the, you know, it's, it, it was a third-party YouTube app for iOS, and it had great reviews. I know, I'm pretty sure Mac Stories did a big review on it once. Um, that, that's one. Of, that's where I heard of it first. And it had many YouTube Pro user features, many features that people want out of YouTube app that the main app either didn't or wouldn't offer. You know, different playback. You know, speeds. And originally, it offered downloading for offline. Uh, YouTube forced them to remove that a long time ago. Um, it offered things like stripping out uh, the audio and just playing the audio and not having to rely on video, so it could be played in the background. Um, things like that uh, that the official app didn't offer for a long time, or if ever. Um, things like picture-in-picture support on the iPad. The official app made you buy YouTube Red to do. So. You can kind of see why the why the official app and why YouTube might not have wanted this to happen, but there there is quite a market to be had in doing things that people want that like the man won't let them do. ProTube existed in this market. This is something that I have a little bit of experience with. Ultimately, though, I try to stay away from this these days. A lot of developers try to build their business on a third party. API or app of some sort, whether it's you know YouTube or a social network like Twitter clients um, or other you know other such things, and, and I, I get a lot of requests for me to open up an Overcast API so people could make third-party clients. This there was a brief time in the internet where where this seemed like an okay business model. Uh, I'd say around like 2004 or so, uh, where all the web services were were opening up public APIs that you could basically do whatever you wanted with and access wasn't controlled at all. So anybody could write clients that did pretty much anything. And this this was considered like a big part of Web 2.0 uh, for a little while. And then everything started getting locked down and, and uh, what was public became private. Uh, what was free became controlled and, and locked out. And more recently, you know, in more recent apps and services that have taken off, uh, they either haven't had an API at all, um, or like in the case of Instagram, there's an a- there is an API, but it's extraordinarily limited, or it might just be discontinued at any point, or or you can't do what you really want to do, uh, which is what most people would, would really want to do with with such an API. There's a, there's a case to be made. There is lots of demand for apps that live in this gray area that that do things that a service might not want, or even even if it has a public API that for the moment you're doing things that the API allows, there is a big market there because usually if you've heard of these services, they're pretty big. They have a lot of users and everybody wants you know something to enhance their favorite service or to make it easier to use or, or whatever else. So it seems like there's there's a business there or there's there's a market there rather. But trying to build an entire business in a situation like that where there is this 
massive fundamental dependency that your app has on someone else's service, that I think is increasingly unwise over time. And that's not to say that nobody should ever do it, but it, it certainly should, I think, give you pause before you invest heavily into it. So, for instance, in the case of ProTube, like, I'm pretty sure that was somebody's full-time job. Uh, or at least that was like that was their primary app that they made, and and I believe they I believe the author even said on the blog post that it did pretty well for a while, and it had lots of users. I personally, at this point in my life, I cannot imagine having my app be a hundred percent dependent on someone else's service. Now, in the app store, we are always hundred percent dependent on Apple. Like that that is one dependency we always have is that, well, Apple at any time could kick us out of the App Store. But in general, if you align your incentives with Apple's, you know, or, or, or at least if you avoid stepping on their feet, there's not much reason for Apple to remove you from the App Store. Like, if you just have some regular app, why would Apple remove it? Like, that would, that would be a huge PR risk to them, maybe even a legal risk if you're big enough. Uh, you know, they, the fact is Apple does not want to go around removing apps for no reason. So, like, I'm not worried with Overcast. I'm not worried that Apple is going to come along and all of a sudden say, you know what, podcast apps are now Ill- illegal again in the App Store, um, and therefore you have to leave. Like that's, I, I don't stay awake at night thinking about that because I think it's incredibly unlikely because there's not much reason for Apple to ever do that, uh, that and that would be too much downside for them for, compared to whatever little upside there might be. Uh, but if you're basing your entire app on something like Twitter or YouTube, um, or some or Facebook, you know, some other big service like that. You are building a business in someone else's property. Like they can do whatever they want, and they don't have the kind of neutral uh, incentive collection that Apple has in that kind of scenario. Like if you're building a Twitter app, you're competing with Twitter and their own app using their own service and their own API to do it. So they are not going to be too keen on that. And even if one of these services has an API where they, they say that they're okay with something one day, the next day that could change. The next year that could change. They might have to boost their metrics and your app might be taking away their metrics. They might get new leadership that wants to take the company a different direction or their investors might force the company to take a different direction. You know, They might need to make changes to the product and the API that your app relies on is getting in the way of that progress. There's all sorts of reasons why most companies and apps and services don't really need to let you build apps on them. And it usually is actually against their best interest these days to do that. And therefore, it is unwise to make your business rely on that. And so in the case of ProTube and YouTube... It is really a shame that this great app that had a lot of big fans and had really been critically acclaimed, it's a shame that that app is now gone because YouTube decided they had enough and they, they made Apple take it down. And by the way, I, I don't think Apple had any choice in the matter. Like That's a simple you know, legal request thing and Apple does not need to put their neck out to, for that. That's not worth it for them. So... This was really, you know, if you if you want to be mad at somebody about this, be mad at YouTube, not Apple. Um, but it's it's a shame this app is gone. But at the same time, it was never on solid ground. It was never 
guaranteed to exist forever. The author of it had no right to, like, no guaranteed right that it would exist forever because it was always, from the beginning, built upon YouTube's property, using YouTube's service, doing things that YouTube really probably didn't want anybody to do, and, you know, living on the edge. And that really, really sucks for the developer that it's now gone and that that business just disappeared. But on some level, that's just the risk you take when you live on the edge like that. Like when you're in, when you live in these gray areas, it could disappear at any moment. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that you should necessarily never build an app like that, but you should expect that, you know, you should go into it knowing that massive risk, knowing that at any time the ground could shift below, below you and your, your entire app could just be gone. Like in in the, in the snap of fingers, like it's just, it, it's just gone. And so, how much do you want to invest in that? How much do you want to rely on that? How much do you want to plan for the future of this business uh, when that could happen at any moment? Yeah, it's so tough too because it's like I feel at a personal level, I feel really bad for this developer. I think it's uh, Jonas Gessner. I think is his name. Like I have been in the position of making an app, having it be successful, and then having it sort of taken out of the store. Um, and thankfully for me, that has that was many years ago when the app store was a slightly different place, um, and so like eventually I was able to get it back in and so on. Like that's a long story for another day, but like I have been in this exact position and I know how this feels, and it feels awful. So at a personal level, like it's very very sympathetic to like how frustrating this must be. But it is, yeah. Like the thing that most fundamentally, when I think about these types of apps, like there is, is anytime there is a popular service. Like there is a built-in audience, and so building applications to um, cater to that audience is makes sense because you're. It's like if you wanted to create your own video, you know, video sharing viewing platform that hosts all the content and has you know has video creators publish your videos on your platform, etc. Like that is completely insurmountable. So piggybacking on top of a big popular, probably the most popular video service in the world, YouTube, makes a lot of sense. But inherent in that is like what you are in some ways doing is it's like you're it's a, you're you're making money off their service, off their costs. Like YouTube is paying all the infrastructure costs. YouTube is paying um, all of the bandwidth costs for hosting this video. And then they're not, act- they don't, they're not, they don't have a mechanism to make money from that. You know, YouTube makes most of its money from its advertising or its, uh, YouTube red subscription service, both of which are, t- are things that as a, you know, any third party client isn't really showing to them. I mean, it's theoretically possible that YouTube could make a mechanism by which you know, developers pay for that, the use of the API. But in general, I don't think that's the case. And so you're always in this kind of tricky position where you're making money off someone else's work in a certain way, um, in a very helpful, useful way. But it's a really tenuous thing because that money that you are able to bring in, that business that exists, um, in many ways belongs to YouTube. Like in from a like they're made they're they're creating the the opportunity for for doing that. They're choosing not to necessarily explore and exploit that themselves. You know, they're not making the YouTube Pro app um, that would do all of these things, and they may have reasons t- for doing that. Um, and they could be, you know, who knows what that what that is? Like maybe they don't want a lot of apps to 
exist that uh, have you know background audio playback because then they get in trouble with uh, music labels who then people are you know just using YouTube as a as a you know music streaming service and that creates legal issues or problems for them and so they don't want to go down that road and sometimes they may want to let that exist um like it's some it's, i mean it reminds me in many ways a lot of of sort of the early days of twitter where it existed part of what made it catch and fueled its initial growth i think was their openness of of their third part of third party clients because it allowed it essentially gave them this massive free developer um, effort that they didn't have to directly pay for. They just paid for the infrastructure. But there was a lot of this creativity and innovation that happened around their platform that they didn't have to manage and direct. You know, they could just sort of let, um, you know, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. And then ultimately they just, they picked the, the most successful flower. You know, they went after, they, they purchased uh, Tweety and, you know, made that the official client. And then now, now that that sort of that, that phase has happened, it's, you know, increasingly they are shutting that down. And I mean, it's uh, the, there's a few players who make third party Twitter apps now, but largely it's kind of this grandfathered in, not really supported or encouraged kind of thing. And in some ways, that's great. If you happened to like, that's a very, that's the best possible scenario, probably, that if you make this kind of dependent service where ultimately you're just kind of grandfathered in. And you can just kind of exist and you have this moat of protection around you because no one else can make these apps anymore. And so you're the only one. So like, that's awesome. But probably much more likely is what's happening here, where they just say, you know, this is not something we want to do. And because you're sort of operating at our um, at, at our pleasure, like at any point, we can just turn this off, they'll just turn it off. Um, and while at some point maybe you can find like crazy technical solutions to work around that and things where you're like you're you're not using this it's not an official API it's an unofficial API or you're just like you're you're posing as the official client like there's all kinds of crazy technical things but ultimately especially because we're existing in the app store environment where YouTube can just go to Apple and say this developer is essentially you know is is violating our terms of service is doing illicit things we need you to take them down you'll get taken down. Like it's not a world where that might exist. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that this happens. Like I feel really bad for the, you know, the people involved in the actual situation, both the the developers as well as the users. But yeah, it's, it's always so tenuous and it's, and it's something that um, I think we'll get into this a bit more later on too, but it's, it, these types of opportunities when they appear, they look so enticing because the audience of the platform is so big and the user base is so large that you look at something like, like when I think of these types of things and I've thought about making YouTube related apps and content and features, it's like the universe of, you know, it's like there's probably, I don't know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who use YouTube and you start to play that game of like, well, what if I could only get like a 10th of 1% of those people to download my app? Then that's huge. And it's like, well, if you did get to do that, if you did have an app that had a lot had a lot of success, in almost in almost necessarily you will the bigger you get, the more trouble you will have. And as a business, that sound it's like that sounds kind of fundamentally problematic. That most of us, when we're setting out to build something, you know, we wanted to have have the ability to grow steadily over time. Whereas in a situation like with almost all of these types of apps, the bigger your app gets, the more likely it is that 
the service that you're reliant on is either is going to become suspicious or you know uh, concerned about you. And maybe on the upside, eventually that would lead to something like an acquisition, which is like I guess the best version of this. You know, like if YouTube had come along and said, "Hey, we're going to buy," you know, we're going to kind of acquire the ProTube app and you know gain from the expertise and the experience of this developer. Like that would be the the happy ending. But you know, there's no guarantees of a happy ending in something like this. Also, keep in mind, like if even even in that scenario where they acquire you, uh, think about the leverage that they have in that situation versus the leverage you have in that situation. Yeah, they, they can bring you into the room and say, "Look, you can come work for us for whatever amount of money we're going to offer you, which probably doesn't need to be that much because of what we're about to say, or we're going to shut you down. That's it. Like we're going to cut off your API access, or you can come work for us. Like you don't have a lot of leverage in that negotiation. They have all the power, so that even that is not a great outcome." <laughs> So. Uh, especially too if you're do implementing features that aren't uh things that are technically difficult in the sense right. of like like twitter bought tweety because lauren brichter is a genius and was doing things like he invented pull to refresh and he was doing crazy ios performance stuff in a way that at the time hard very few people could touch and so like his leverage wasn't that he um, was doing things that he was he was doing things that Twitter just couldn't re- recreate. Whereas in in you know in this case it becomes much trickier, and your position is would definitely be much weaker. Where it's like it's things that the content provider or the platform owner is co- consciously choosing not to implement. Um, your leverage goes down dramatically. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons I, I think we see a lot of younger developers falling into the trap of of assuming that they can build an app on this kind of thing and and that they'll be okay and that or that will be okay and then you know some of that just comes with experience of you know whether you trust that kind of stuff or not but also you know i i feel like younger developers have i I, i'm I'm sorry if this is insulting i don't mean it to be they don't often distinguish well between what's a public good on the internet and what's a private service or you, or you make assumptions about about the private services that they are maybe more publicly uh, available or more publicly open or that you have more rights than you actually have. Um, and like this is one of the things, one of the reasons why all us olds uh, talk about things like the open web and open protocols and open formats, decentralization, um, because so much of the internet now is privatized. So much of usage of metrics of time spent uh, is happening under the complete control of one of a handful of web giants. That there is almost nothing public left that that a lot of people think about and use all the time and think about every day. Like almost all usage is in Facebook or you know Google does all the searches and YouTube does all the video. And so if you actually want to you know, try to build something lasting, build it on open platforms and open standards and in open places uh, where you can be the business, you can be the service that's in control. This is one of the reasons I like podcasting so much because Apple has some role in it, but not actually a very major one anymore. Um, and so my main dependency on Apple is literally just the app store. Like if, if the iTunes API shut down tomorrow, I'd be totally fine. Um, so when you're choosing what to do, build in open spaces. Anyway, speaking of spaces, <laughs> bad transition, but this episode is brought to you by Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Eero has created the dream Wi-Fi setup. 
a fast, reliable connection throughout your house and all of its open spaces. <laughs> and now is the best time to get on board with Eero. They've just released their new super slick second generation devices. It is a tri-band model along with the new Eero Beacon. This allows you to build a, a Wi-Fi system that is perfectly tailored to your home. Uh, the second generation here also includes a third 5 gigahertz radio, making it twice as fast as before. So it's an amazing little thing. There's these nice little white devices. They are just beautiful. They're small, and they are incredibly easy to set up. So you just plug one into your internet connection, and then you plug in the beacons anywhere else in your house. Uh, and then they act as basically repeaters, but they communicate with themselves through this backhaul mesh network that is way faster than a traditional Wi-Fi repeater has ever been. The performance on these things is amazing. And you can even wire the remote ones if you want to to get even faster performance. Uh, so it really is it is by far the easiest multi-access point Wi-Fi setup, heck, the easiest Wi-Fi setup period that I've ever seen. You download their app, it's all super easy, it walks you through it, and then this covers your house in Wi-Fi through multiple access points. It is wonderful. It's easy to manage, highly recommended, and their customer support is amazing if you need any help. Uh, so, the new Eero system starts at just $399 for one second generation base station and two beacons, and that's everything most houses will need. If you want more beacons to expand your range, you can do that too, but most people won't need to. The three of them covers pretty much every house. Uh, so listeners of this show can get free overnight shipping to U.S. or Canada when you head to Eero.com, that's E-E-R-O.com, and use the promo code RADAR. That's Eero.com, promo code RADAR for free overnight shipping. Thank you to Eero for their support of this show. So uh, related to this type of uh, this, this discussion of ProTube and relying on external services, I think a interesting place to wrap up might be to also talk a little bit about exploiting developer opportunities um, in this kind of seeing seeing an opportunity, seeing a niche um, that exists, and then sort of trying to build an app inside of that. Because often I feel like that is the especially as a smaller developer, uh, one man, one, one, two, three people, person, team, whatever you're, we are best able to thrive and flourish in these kind of small spaces that may be too small for a larger company to want to go after. Um, or maybe you have the ability to get in there right away. Like I've taken advantage of this many times myself where a new API you know, is introduced in iOS or watchOS and I immediately jump on it and kind of dive in there to take advantage of it. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like in some ways this is what um, this app was doing, um, but in others it's not. And I think maybe it's interesting to kind of differentiate between the types of opportunities that um, are likely going to be sustainable um, down the road and those these types of opportunities that are tenuous and exist sort of if somewhat more transiently. Um, and it isn't necessarily that, that one, you should only ever pursue the first and ignore the second because there are certainly opportunities, I'm sure, where it's like making an app that is useful or exists, you know, solely for um, a few weeks or a few months for um, could potentially be worth doing. Um, I mean, I, so there's been numerous of these. I feel like that they come up in the app store. Like when the iPods first came out, there's a whole there's a couple of apps that did were iPod found finders before uh, Apple introduced Find My iPod into the Find My Friends app. Um, AirPods, you mean? yeah. Sorry, sorry, the AirPods um, and 
that those like find my AirPods apps like exist in this kind of tenuous space that I don't, I mean, ultimately I think a lot of them were pulled from the app store. So like maybe they didn't actually end up being financially viable in that sense, but like that kind of an opportunity where it's like, here's this thing that exists. Um, it may have a very short lived lifespan, but then like you can go in, you can take advantage of it. You potentially don't put in a massive amount of development resources into it. And then you move on. Like that's interesting. And that's potentially useful, uh, useful in, in a lot of cases versus I think it's, it's keeping in mind that there are other opportunities that are just these, you know, building an app that is filling, filling a, filling a space, um, that is too small for someone as a, you know, it's too, too small for a big competitor to come in and try and compete with you with, um, and just, you know, surviving in there and taking advantage of that space. Like, I mean, I think of some of these, like, and uh, for some reason, I think I'm on the Mac a lot more about these, but there's so many of these like little tools, these little utilities, um, that exist to solve a little annoyance or fix something, um, that's, a, you know, doing window management. I mean, is a common example of something on the Mac maybe where like you're solving this little problem that isn't, you know, that theoretically Apple could one day come along and Sherlock you. And usually that is the, like the big risk for these kinds of apps, um, where, you know, you have some, some bigger person will eventually come along and, and slurp up the, that space, but you can often, you know, be, have a sustainable business for a long time. Um, or you can be in these kind of, in this kind of a situation where maybe other people aren't going after it, the opportunity, because it's kind of dubious or kind of tenuous as to whether it's something that's allowed. Um, but I don't know. I think it's worth just considering. And probably the overall lesson is before you, it's so easy as a developer, I think to, to start down the road of development when you see an opportunity like that, to just go in and do it and worry about, like you see this technical opportunity and you go and try and solve it. But it's probably the important thing is, or that I've learned from my experience is to take like two or three steps back and be like, what is this likely going to look like down the road? Um, you know, is this an app that I'm going to want to, uh, maintain? Is this an app that I'm, that I think would make a sustainable business? Do I think, what is the likelihood of this being, uh, Sherlocked down the road? I mean, and actually this very summer, like, I had a couple of ideas for apps related to iPad multitasking and some of the new changes there. And I think ultimately I've decided I'm not going to ultimately ship them because the more I looked at it and the more I decided like I'm solving this very niche, narrow like problem that I think will exist for at most a year, probably less, um, I, you know, that I think these there's these little rough edges that Apple will likely sand down over the next couple of point releases. Um, and do I really want to go through the effort of building out a fully featured app and then putting it out and supporting it and maintaining it and having this sort of this expectational debt then that if Apple solves it, but half solves it or makes it worse, then like it's becomes this thing that I need to manage. And I just decided, you know, it's probably not worth it. And I think doing that exercise is something I didn't used to do. And so I just wanted to mention it as something to encourage everyone else to, whenever you see these little opportunities, make sure we're being thoughtful about if it's a if it's a good if it's a good thing that is going to come back to benefit us in the future and if it's not go into it with eyes open saying like i'm making making this app that i expect to sell for a few weeks or a few months and that's okay and if it you know had if it was a big a big flash and a big fall that's fine oh yeah i mean i've i have failed to learn this lesson so many times 
I mean, I made a magazine, then realized I didn't like running a magazine. I made an ad blocker, then realized it's a terrible business I didn't want to be in. Uh, <laughs> I've made that, made that mistake so many times of like being on the, and, and especially like in the case of the ad blocker and even to some degree Instapaper, um, when you are kind of like living on the edge of what might be considered legal with copyright or things like copyright, there's a huge market of people who want that kind of thing. And you can build a business there, but it's like building a business on the edge of a volcano. Like, it is a very, very high risk, and you never know, like, what could blow up in your face and really cause problems for you. I mean, people who made ad blockers were getting sued, um, like, not that long after I stopped making mine. <laughs> and I, I just narrowly dodged that risk. Um, so, again, it's like, there are there's a business to be had here, but do you want that business? Are you willing to accept the risks of that? And how long is that going to be a business? And, and how much that is in your control? Yeah, and I think, too, it's the maturity of being okay with missing out um, is ultimately what I think it came down for that. Like I had to grow as a person to the point that I could say, if I don't do this and someone else does, I need to be okay with the fact that they may have a good run or it could be successful and not play the like, what if I had done it? If only I had done it kind of a game. Cause ultimately that's just going to drive you crazy. Like you have to be like, make an informed decision, give it some thought and then just be able to be like, you know, like that was the choice I made and live with that rather than just sort of making these choices out of just the fear of potentially missing out down the road. Like that's no way to, to, to build a business or to, or to make, do make choices in ways that are going to be you know, sustainable for your, your, your mental health. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.